All right, let's take the Word of God together and go to the book of John. John chapter number 18. John chapter number 18. We're going to continue our series in the book of John. And we're going to consider for our subject this morning, we're going to consider a question that our Lord asks. And that simple question, seemingly simple question, is whom seek ye? Whom seek ye? In our text in John chapter number 18, I want to draw your attention to the two verses where this question is given. First in verse number four. Let's look at that verse together. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, whom seek ye? And then if you'll drop down to verse number seven, the question is repeated. Then ask he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, let's look at these two questions and these two verses, and then we'll, we'll expound the text around it and kind of look at the events as they unfolded. But notice there in verse number four, it's very, very important to understand that before Jesus asks the question in verse number four, the Bible tells us this very important bit of information. Knowing all things that should come upon him went forth. Our Lord here, knowing all things that would come upon him, goes forth. He who knows all things asks a question seemingly as if he doesn't know. Whom seek ye? Now we remember, maybe we remember back in John chapter number six, uh, quite a while ago, that at that time the people wanted Jesus to assume the throne then. They wanted him to be a king. They wanted him to allow his kingdom to be now. And of course, we know that during that time and during that text, the Lord Jesus withdrew himself from them. He was not going to allow himself to be taken as king. Now that's key to understand here because Jesus, knowing all things, back in John 6, he said, I will not be taken. He withdrew himself. But yet, when we get to this text in John 18, we understand that something different is now taking place. We understand that now Jesus is allowing himself to be taken. He knows all things. And yet, the people are going to force him to a cross. Now, I'm using the word force very, very loosely because we know he's going to go willingly. But you see the difference. In John 6, he did not allow himself to be taken. In John chapter number 18, he is allowing himself to be taken. There is the difference. What is the common denominator? The common denominator is, is the providential hand of God. In John chapter number 6, Jesus had not come to be a king and a ruler of the people then. He had come for the very purpose in which we're seeing being played out in front of us in our text in John 18 as we dig into this. We're going to see from the text this morning that our Lord in His divine power, and we'll see a demonstration of His power even in this text, He could have struck down every single person who came to take Him. He could have struck them all down dead. Yet we see an example of our Lord's meekness, and we see His humility, and we will see His obedience to God the Father. He submitted himself. He did not withdraw. He submits himself to finish the work of redemption. So why would our Lord ask a question that seemingly 
indicates that he doesn't know. If I was to be standing here today and someone was to come and knock at the door and I don't know who they are, I might ask them the question, uh, who are you looking for? I honestly and truly would not know the answer to that question. But yet when Jesus asked this question, he's asking it with regard to himself. He's asking these who are in this location, which we'll show in just a moment, he's asking them, who are you coming after? Now he knows who they're coming after. He knows they're coming for him because this is the appointed hour. This is the time in which was predetermined for the foundation of the world that Christ would allow himself to be taken and he's going to go and finish the work of redemption. Now, as we look at this text this morning, we go through this narrative. Go back to verse number one of John 18 and notice what it says. It, it continues our thinking back from John 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. Now, the words in which Jesus had spoke, he had spoken, of course, words of comfort. He had been instructing his disciples. He had been teaching them regarding his coming death, his departure, and what their future as his disciples was going to look at. We remember that as we've studied this together. That was in John 13, really all the way through John 17, those chapters. And we saw in John 17 specifically the high priestly prayer that he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for himself, and then he prayed for other believers. So now we see the narrative kind of changes its location. He goes with his disciples over what's referred to as the brook Cedron into a garden. Now, John does not tell us the name of that garden, but this garden we know according to Matthew 26, which we're going to turn there in just a moment, is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I'm going to encourage you as we go through this today to hold your place in John, but also hold your place in Matthew 26. We're going to look at these two narratives together. So go ahead and go to Matthew 26. Matthew gives us some insight and some perspective that John does not. Now, it doesn't mean that one of the writers is better than the other. It's just under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're given a little bit more information about this garden and what's taking place. So in Matthew 26, look with me at verse 36. This is the same account. It's the same narrative. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, and that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. 
And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now we read all that because we understand that as they enter into this garden, as we look back in John 18, they cross over the brook Cedron, they go into the garden. This is what took place in the garden. Okay, we were aware of that. But John, the Gospel of John does not fill in all those gaps. Now let's go back to John 18, verse number 2. Now, Because we left, we left off with Matthew 26, 46 says, Let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And then we see verse 2 of John 18. And Judas also, which betrayed him. You see how the narratives connect. Knew the place. That's important. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Now, this garden, this Gethsemane, was most likely located at the foot of Mount Olivet. Now, the Lord often would go there. Sometimes he would go to pray alone. Other times he would go with his disciples. Judas was very well acquainted that this was a regular place that Jesus and the disciples would go. This was Jesus' private place of prayer. It was a time when he would go and when he would, 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 would remove himself from the activities of the day. That's where he would go. But it's very clear, okay, very clear from Scripture that Judas knew it so well, okay, he knew it so well that this tells us something about our Lord. He made no attempt to hide himself from what he knew was coming. He went to a place that the betrayer would know exactly his location. Now John 18.3, it says, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. You ought to just consider that for a moment. Bands of men. Multiple, multitudes of people. Coming with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, again, there's some pieces of information here that Matthew gives us that we don't see in John. So if you want to go back to Matthew 26 again, drop back to Matthew 26, verses 14 and 16. Okay? This is the account of, of Judas betraying Jesus. Okay? John doesn't talk about this. But we see it here in Matthew. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time, okay, from that time he, that's Judas, sought opportunity to betray him. Okay, so we, all this has happened before Judas ever gets to the garden in John 18. I just want Matthew's filling in the gaps. Now, you're still in Matthew 26. Drop down to where we left off after we got to verse 46 and look at verse 47. Okay, again, this gives us information that John doesn't. Verse 47, and while he yet spake, that's Jesus, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude of sword staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, 
Whomever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith, he came to Jesus, again, that's Judas, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Okay, now we'll stop there because we're going to come back there again. Back over to John 18, where we left off. Go back to the the verse where we started, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, everything we just read in Matthew, everything we've read in John that should come upon him, leads him to ask this question. Whom seek ye? Whom seek ye? So here you have Jesus being uh, come upon by a multitude of people. There are chief priests, there are elders, there are officers, there are soldiers. They've got torches, they've got weapons. John's main point is this, that Judas the betrayer knew exactly where the Lord would be. He served as the guide. He served as the one given directions. He's, being, he's leading this multitude of people as if Jesus is some type of a criminal. They're coming at him with an entire army of people to take one man, Jesus, who is going to go willingly. He's not even going to resist. This shows us, really this shows us, number one, it reminds us again of the depravity of Judas. It was one of the Lord's disciples, and yes, we understand biblically and doctrinally about Judas that Uh, He was, before the foundation of the world, he would be the betrayer. We understand that and we accept that. We acknowledge it. But here's one of Jesus' disciples leading a multitude of people against Christ as if he was some sort of a criminal. This This is the perfect example of the depravity of man. When you think man can't get any worse, here is a picture of depravity. So we see verses 4 and 5 as Jesus knows all things. He knows it because it's been purposed, it's been willed, that in Him all righteousness would be fulfilled. The justice of God the Father would be satisfied. The nature of sin, how serious sin is, would be exposed. And in all of this, Christ is going to redeem His own. Jesus knew it, number one, because He's God, But it was also recorded in the Old Testament that not only must he suffer, but that in order to be the redeeming lamb, he had to die. And even more specifically, the Old Testament and even other scriptures teach us that every one of the circumstances around Jesus going to the cross was prophesied and told. We see that in Luke 24 and Acts 15. You can read those for yourself. Those events were all spelled out. We notice here that in verse 4 of John 18, Jesus said unto them, this gives an indication that he wasn't hiding. He stepped out to where they were. Almost as to say, here I am. And yet he asked the question, whom seek ye? Now, he knows they're seeking him. He knows that that's what they're there for. It's interesting what Jesus is doing here. And then, of course, we saw in the, the account of Matthew that Judas, as Jesus steps out, 
Jesus steps out. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, which is a sign. But it would have been wholly unnecessary because Jesus himself would have still given himself over. So we see that all of this, as Jesus asked this question, whom seek ye? Jesus is in total control of this situation. He is in hiding. He's not trying to run. He's in control. And notice the answer in verse 5 to the, the question. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the answer to Jesus' question in verse 4. Whom seek ye? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says what? I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. All right, so what you see happening here is you see Jesus asked the question. They answer it by saying Jesus of Nazareth. John again mentions the fact that it was Judas, the one who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, is the one that plants the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of our Lord. He's standing there with the wicked man, and Jesus says, I am he. Now this reference, I am, of course, is a reference to deity. It mirrors what is said in Exodus chapter number 3, verses 13 through 14, which declared that God's statements of I am, but it also goes along with what Jesus said in John chapter number 8, verse 24, when Jesus said these words regarding this. He says, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, exact words, ye shall die in your sins. John 18, when he answers the question, whom seek ye, he says, I am he. He's declaring himself to be Jehovah God, to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. The Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And verse 6 tells us, as soon as he said that unto them, said what? I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. His answer was delivered with so much authority, so much power, so much majesty that they went backward and fell to the ground. These Multitude of people that came out with him with torches and lanterns and swords and weapons. They came at him and as soon as he said, I am he, they fell backward. We see a little bit of this authority and the power, divine power of the voice of the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. If you'd like to turn there. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. If not, I'll just read it to you. But John as he is writing the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come, gives a testimony of what happened when he saw the Lord. Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he, there it is again, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. You see, our Lord in John 18, verse 6, he spoke with such authority that even the unbelieving man 
is brought to their knees. He is God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He speaks and man falls. In creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they spoke the world into existence. When our Lord speaks, men live or men die. That's the authority that Christ has. Our Lord speaks and graves are open. No man, Jesus said, takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. Now folks, let's think about that for a minute. Think about the sovereignty and the power that just the sound of Jesus' voice put a multitude of His enemies on their back. Now you compare that, what He speaks here, putting these enemies on their back. And I want you to compare that to what happens when he goes to the cross and he accomplishes the work of redemption. If his voice puts people on their back, imagine what's going to take place when he finally, under his own will, his own voluntary will, goes to the cross and accomplishes and completes the work of redemption. Right here in John 18, Jesus could have easily walked away. He could have struck every person who had come to get him dead. But yet we see the text moves on. Then ask he them again, whom seek ye? Their answer is exactly the same. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a peculiar question. Our Lord question and their answer is exactly the same as it was in verses 4 and 5. He makes it very clear. I am the one you are after. I am He. Then notice it gets, Jesus gets a little bit more specific. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. It is therefore, if therefore rather, ye seek me. Let these go their way. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He says, all right, if I'm the one you're after, which he knows they are, if I'm the one, let my disciples go. Do not bring them with us. Do not bring them with me. Why? Because we know scripturally that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was to suffer alone. Isaiah 53 gives us the prophecy of the Messiah when He would come. That Christ was to suffer alone. He is the only Savior, the only Redeemer. He's the only sacrifice. But we also learn from Isaiah 53 that if Christ suffers, His people must go free. Here's the reality, folks. Substitution is the very essence of the Gospel. Jesus is showing us a picture of an atoning sacrifice, of a substitution. He's telling them, I am taking their place. Let them go. There's nothing they can do. What I'm getting ready to do, they have no part in. And this ought to remind us, folks, that we have no part in our own redemption. Jesus says, I am He. I am the one you're after because I am the sacrifice. I am the lamb without blemish. I am the lamb without spot. I am the prophesied suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Substitution is the very essence of what we see here. 
Christ is apprehended or arrested in order that his people might go free. The reality is this. Christ, our Lord, dies and we live. Christ bears all of the punishment, bears all of the curse, all of the penalty. He took upon himself all of the wrath against sin in his own body. We are free because of what Christ has done. The payment for the justice of God cannot be paid twice. It was paid once. It was paid by Jesus Christ, our substitute. As a substitute, we've talked about this today already, about satisfaction. Christ was also the complete and perfect satisfaction of the demands of a holy God. Friends, if you will study and learn about just those two principles, substitution and satisfaction of Christ, you will learn the very work of the person of Jesus Christ and His redeeming power. That is the Gospel. I, a sinner, needed someone to take my place because I could not substitute for my own sin. Jesus Christ substituted for my sin. He took my place and thus what He did was satisfy the demands of a holy God. I could not do that. Man may make the argument and falsely say, well, I'm not a sinner. Obviously, man does not understand himself if he declares himself to be without sin. The Bible declares that he who says he has no sin, he's a liar. Lying of itself is a sin. But we also know the promises of the Word like we saw in John 17, verse number 12. The Bible told us that Jesus, as He was praying for His disciples, He said, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. Those that Thou gavest Me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that's Judas, and that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So we see here that Jesus says, If it's Me you're after, let them go. That was to fulfill the words in which John 17, 12 said. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. The connection between John 18, 8 is connected directly to John 17, 12. After these words to fulfill, we, we, we expect something to be, to be different here. We expect Him to say something different, but yet Jesus says that this is what I came for. I came in order that they might go but that I would take their place. And we see verse number 9, that the saying, here's that word again, might be fulfilled, which He spake of them which Thou gavest Me, have I lost none. Christ never lost a single individual that God the Father had given to Him. He will not lose one. Those that are in Christ today will be in Christ tomorrow. They'll be in Christ the day after that. They'll be in Christ for all of eternity. They will never be eternally lost. Now Jesus says all of these things and we see a familiar person come up. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. Often people 
have asked the question, why, why did Peter have a sword? Well, the interesting answer to that is actually found in Luke 22. If you want to go back to Luke 22, this is not by coincidence. And you'll see why he had a sword. This has been, this is debated by many who make the argument that says, listen, as, as God's people, uh, we should always be armed with something. But I want you to see the context which Jesus had spoken this in Luke 22. And look at verse 35. Luke 22, verse 35. And Jesus has been giving advice to his disciples. And here's, here's what he says. Let's actually begin in verse 34. And he said, Jesus speaking to Peter, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, but now... He that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Sell his garment and buy what? A sword. That's why Peter had a sword. For I say unto you that this that it is written must yet be accomplished, here's the key, in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. All right, so that answers the age-old question, why did Peter have a sword? Because the Lord told him to get one. Now here's what makes what happens now even more interesting. Because we immediately start thinking, okay, the Lord must have told Peter to get a sword because he wanted him to use it very interesting. John 18.10 tells us that Peter takes that sword. He acts by impulse. By the way, don't accuse Peter of always acting impulsively as if we don't, but he acted impulsively with a desire to deliver Jesus from this moment. That's what his intention was. Look what it says. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, we, we just learned why he had the sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now here's what didn't happen. Peter did not surgically and strategically aim and just take his ear off. Peter intended to take his head off. He intended by his action to deliver his master from the appointed hour. He draws that very sword that Jesus had told him to take. He strikes Malchus. Malchus is the high priest's servant and he cuts off his ear. There's no doubt in my mind his intention was to actually remove his head. He, he wasn't just trying to uh, strike him just to remove his ear. But even more remarkable than that, it tells us about the smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. All right, so our Lord speaks to Peter here. 
He tells him, this is in, in, in a way a rebuke. Now go back to Matthew 26, and again, let's fill in a few more of these things that John doesn't write about. It helps us. Matthew 26, verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand. Now see, Matthew doesn't say it was Peter. And drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Matthew also doesn't say it's Malchus. John fills in that gap. Then said Jesus unto him, put up again thy sword into his place. Now this is so important. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. He is, he is rebuking Peter's thought that I can do and I can accomplish what needs to be accomplished with the sword. Now, Jesus refers to two things in this verse. He refers to the sword and the cup. Okay, the sword and the cup. And we'll come, back, we'll come back to Matthew and finish this, but let's go back to John 18 and, and now emphasize this, the cup. Jesus obviously does not want Peter to take this action. He rebukes him for taking the sword out. He tells him to put the sword back up, but then he refers to the cup. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? The cup throughout the Gospels is a reference to the passion of Christ or the passion of our Lord. It refers to His suffering. It refers to His death, which was decreed by the Father. We learned that in John 12, 27, when our Lord said these, these exact words, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. The cup referred to the passion, the suffering of our Lord. What He would suffer and die was decreed by the Father before the foundation of the world. The death of Christ, His death upon a cross, was not an accident or was never to be used as an example of a helpless martyr. It was decreed, it was designed, and it was determined in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would be the Savior. All of these things that are happening are happening according to the Father's plan. We understand that from the very foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8 gives us a little bit of insight about this foundation of the world that Jesus it was determined that he would be John 13:28 or 13:8 rather says this and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life who are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain it's a reference to Christ slain from the foundation of the world Christ's death was from the foundation of the world. Jesus is telling Peter, shall I not drink, take the cup of suffering which my Father has given me to drink. He is, he's in a way saying, God forbid that that would be the case, that I would not obey my Father. Folks, here's the truth about Christ, one of the many truths about Christ. He is not only able to fulfill all that is written, but He is willing. Willing to fulfill, able to fulfill, 
He is the only way. Jesus had said John 10, 18, in John 10.18, No man taketh it from me. He's referring to his life. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So as we come to the end of what we're going to cover for today, Jesus, with this interaction, as this interaction with Peter ends, verse 12 tells us, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound Him. Now here's what we see. Obviously, the Lord allows His hands to be bound. He allows Himself to be led away. Matthew 26, again, fills in some details that we don't see in John 18. What happens to the disciples? Where are they going? What's happening? Matthew fills in the gaps, beginning in verse number 53. After Jesus, another account of him speaking with Peter, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So here's what John doesn't say. Jesus allows himself to be bound and taken. At the same time he's being taken, the disciples run. They run and they're gone. Interestingly enough, in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14, Mark writes about someone who John doesn't mention, Matthew doesn't mention, and we're not told a lot about, but I want, us, I want you to see it. Look at Mark 14. Mark 14, verses 48 through 52. Mark 14, verses 48 through 52. Again, same account. Verse 47 of Mark 14 tells us about Peter taking off the ear of Malchus. Verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled. But look what Mark writes about in verses 51 and 52. And there followed him a certain young man. Now it's interesting, we don't know who this certain young man is. Having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young man laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. The disciples flee, and we're told about this certain young man, which we don't know who he is, but we see the entire narrative here. So we see Christ now, and we'll, we'll pick this up next week, where Christ willfully, voluntarily allows himself to be taken, and he's going to appear before a man named Annas first, and then... He's going, we're going to see the, the events and the accounts as they unfold from there. But friends, what I want us to see as we bring this time to a close today is to think about this narrative begins by Christ going by His own accord into a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, which His betrayer Judas, Judas knew very, very well. Jesus was going with the intention of being taken. 
He was going with the understanding and the knowledge that by his obedience to the Father, by his going voluntarily to the cross, he would take away the sin of the world that entered into the world by the sin of one man's rebellion that goes all the way back to Adam. Here Christ is going to be taken as an innocent person. But yet he's going to be treated as a common criminal. He's going to be treated as someone who is a thief, someone who is wicked. But let's understand something. All of this is Christ's person being bound, not his power. This is so important to understand. Christ's hands were bound in his humanity, but his power was not. He never ceases to be God. And that is so important because this God-man who is allowing himself to be taken in, in chains, whatever they were, those chains were doing nothing to his power. It was only binding his person. His adversaries, his enemies think we have him. There's nothing he can do now. We're going to take his life and end whatever he can do. Little do they know that what they're doing is fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling scripture. They are doing exactly what God before the foundation of the world had decreed and determined would happen. They are fulfilling God's plan. Folks, when we look out into the world and we wonder, how can wicked exist? How can evil seem to be gaining a foothold? Do not lose sight of the fact and the reality that even the wickedness of this world, God uses to accomplish His purposes and His plan. Remember, Christ was only taken when He allowed Himself to be taken, even in His person. They only took Him according to the Scriptures. There was not a single minute detail that happened that did not happen according to what the prophets had said. Christ in his humanity is going to be brought before, this is important, is going to be brought before an earthly priest. He's not being brought before God. He's being brought before an earthly high priest. He's going to be condemned as a blasphemer. But ultimately, he's standing before this earthly priest. He's going to be condemned to die, be accused of that which he didn't do in order that you and I as sinners might be acquitted by the everlasting high priest. That we will be delivered from our sin. Christ allowed himself to be taken. Friends, my plea with you today is simply to acknowledge that Christ alone, He is that substitutionary sacrifice. He is the only satisfaction to the righteous demands of a holy God. Christ has already finished the work. He's already gone to the cross. He's finished the work of redemption. There is nothing else to be done. There's nothing else that we can do. There's nothing that we can offer. And I would call you to repentance today and say, listen, if you have not repented of your sin, repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone. Trust in His finished work. 
There is nothing, there is nothing more pressing, nothing more important today than the acknowledgement of your own sin. You and I put Jesus Christ on the cross. We put Him there. Not because we were worthy. Not because we deserved it. Not because we bring Him value. But before the foundation of the world, it was determined that Christ would bring a people unto Himself. Countless millions of Billions of people, whatever the case may be, we, we cannot count the number that He has brought unto Himself, but we know the promises of this, that He will not lose a single one. If you belong to Him, you will eternally belong to Him. You might say, how do I know that I belong to Him? If the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with you today, is speaking with your heart, is opening your eyes and opening your ears, and you're, you're seeing the truth, you're being enlightened and quickened by the Holy Spirit, do not neglect that. Repent now. And say, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I want to close our thinking this morning with a reading from our Valley of Vision. This is the way we end our Sunday and Wednesday worship services. And this, this Valley of Vision is entitled Sincerity. It's on page 316 for most of us. I know there are a couple different books out there, but this one's entitled Sincerity. And here's what it says. Elector of saints, blessed is the man whom thou choosest and callest to thyself. With thee is mercy, redemption, assurance, forgiveness. Thou hast lifted me a prisoner out of the pit of sin and pronounced my discharge not only in the courts of heaven, but in the dock of conscience. Hast justified me by faith, given me peace with thee, made me to enjoy glorious liberty as thy child. Save me from the false hope of the hypocrite. May I never suppose I am in Christ unless I am a new creature." Never think I am born of the Spirit unless I mind the things of the Spirit. Never rest satisfied with professions of belief and outward forms and services while my heart is not right with thee. May I judge my sincerity in religion by my fear to offend thee, my concern to know thy will, my willingness to deny myself. May nothing render me forgetful of thy glory or turn me aside from thy commands or shake my confidence in thy promises, or offend thy children. Let not my temporal occupations injure my spiritual concerns, or the cares of life make me neglect the one thing needful. May I not be inattentive to the design of thy dealings with me, or insensible under thy rebukes, or immobile at thy calls. May I learn the holy art of abiding in thee, of being in the world and not of it of making everything not only consistent consistent with, but conducive to my religion. As we close our time today, we'll play through the hymn, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. And as we play through that hymn, I would encourage you just to sit and listen as the hymn is played and think and ponder the things we've heard today. 
And then when that hymn is concluded, our time and our services will conclude for today. So let's just listen to the hymn, I greet thee who my sure Redeemer art. Thank you.